Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Supplied, episode 316. Today is also the 13th of Tammuz, Yud Gimel Tammuz, which goes hand in hand with the 12th of Tammuz, Yud Beis Tammuz, because 93 years ago, on this day, the Friedrich Rebbe was liberated from prison and from exile for so-called counter-revolutionary activity, which was essentially a, uh, a word that the Soviets, the tyrants, the, uh, the criminal Soviet Union used against anyone who was not following line with their agenda. Friedrich Rebbe stood strong against that powerful regime, was arrested for it in 1927, and he finally was liberated completely on the 12th. And because that day was a holiday and the, and the offices, the government offices was, were closed, so he actually received his liberation papers and was liberated on the 13th of Tammuz. And hence the holiday of Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tammuz, which we discussed last week. But since today is the 13th of Tammuz, how can we not mention it on a program called My Life Chassidus Applied? And the application is really two words, three words. Nothing is impossible. That's what the Friedrich Rebbe demonstrated and pioneered and broke new ground in that area because he was dealing with a regime, as I said, that was absolutely impossible to compromise or work with. They were not, there was no due process. They were completely self-righteous in their cause. They saw religion as a threat. The Friedrich Rebbe Standing strong was an absolute um, threat to their entire, everything they represented, and they arrested him, and yet he prevailed. And he didn't just prevail that he was liberated, he actually left the country. And today, when we look back, 93 years, what are we celebrating now in the Soviet Union? You don't hear a lot about Stalin, the Evsekcia, that was the Jewish Department of the Communists, that's so... Uh, that so persecuted the previous Rebbe. You find today celebrations of the 12th of 13th of Tammuz, that liberation, that victory, because it was a spiritual victory. It was a victory that demonstrated that when you stand strong with your beliefs and you are resolute and do not compromise, you ultimately prevail. It may not be immediately. It may come with some pain. And there were plenty of prices paid. But at the end of the day, you prevail. And that's what we have to look at as the big picture, not the immediate story, the bigger choreography, the greater choreography. It's a tremendous lesson in life in general, and specifically in our times when we are faced with our own challenges. Not quite like those, but still, there's a pandemic, and now hopefully it's not a second surge, it's just a reoccurrence and, uh, and will go away, but there's still the concerns, the health concerns, the psychological, emotional toll it's taking on people. In addition to the social and cultural unrest in our streets and many unknowns and uncertainties that have emerged. I say emerged because they may have been there before but perhaps weren't exposed. But regardless, they are shaking people up, seriously. I just read a statistic which I don't want to believe and who knows these statistics, who's taking them and what agenda, but let's just mention it, that a third of the United States population is suffering from some form of clinical depression now. Again, I'm not vouching for these, but numbers matter, and regardless whether it's a third, but it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely taking its, having its impact and taking its toll. That is why now more than ever, 
we need to dig deeper in to discover our spiritual resources, which is why My Life Chassidus Applied has taken that focus from the moment that this pandemic broke and became official mid-March around Purim time. That's exactly what we've been doing. Without even effort, this is what, what I have been trained for. This is what we should all be trained for, to rise to the occasion, dig deeper, and come away with stronger resources and faculties and strengths to face the unknowns. Because that, perhaps, is the greatest challenge. There's no question medical health challenges need to be addressed, but it's far more profound, the impact it has on our morale, on our positivity, on our psychological mindsets and emotional heartsets, which affects not just us, but also our loved ones and our close ones, our families, our children. And they will always look back at this time, and they, they will take a cue from us. How did we behave? That is why it's so vital to demonstrate that yes, we're prudent, we're practical, we're not, we're not reckless, but at the same time, we listen to medical authorities, etc. but at the same time, from a spirit point of view, we're in total control because we can navigate through anything. And the Friedrich Rebbe taught us 93 years ago, in the year 1927, Tafresh which the Friedrich Rebbe described himself in the next year when he wrote a letter in 1928, to honor the first anniversary, and not me, not my, not me myself. Not, not, not only me did God redeem and liberate on this day in Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tammuz, but every person, every Jew, and every person, and essentially is the victory of spirit, and that is what is vital to take away, and timeless and especially timely in times when we are shaken up, when the material world and its schedules and routines are disrupted. So nothing is impossible. One also dedicated the program to my dear grandfather, who I'm a namesake, Rabbi Simon Yakabashvili, born in Georgia, became a Chabad Chassid, and he became one of the 10 people, together with the Friedrich Rebbe, that took upon themselves a blood pact to the last drop of blood, a blood pact in, the, in earlier, in the year 1922, Tafresh Pei that they would do everything possible to maintain Jewish life, Jewish religious life, in the difficult Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain. Many of them were killed and arrested. My father, grandfather was arrested, sent off to the Gulag in Siberia for a number of years. He came out a few years later. <clears throat> they tried to break him, but they could not break his spirit. His yard site is in the second day of Tammuz. Interesting. It's always around the time of the Friedrich Rebbe's birthday, which is Yud Beis Yumel Gimel Tammuz. I should mention this year is 140 years of the, since the Friedrich Rebbe was born in the year in Tafresh in Mem. That would be 1880. So now we're in uh, 2020. So that's um, 40, 140 years ago. And that same day was the day of his liberation. So it shouldn't surprise anyone. Base Tammuz, the second of Tammuz, the yard site of my grandfather in the year 1953, was the year when, um, when uh, he passed away. So that would be how many years ago? How many years would that be? 67 years ago. 67 years, I believe. Yeah. 
So in that sense, right, 67, because this is the 70th year from the Rebbe's leadership. Beis Tammuz is also the day before Gimel Tammuz, the anniversary, this the 26th anniversary of the Rebbe's passing. So being that he is my namesake, a unique name, Simon, not Shimon, but Simon. He was born, as I said, in Kutais, which is a city, a small town in Georgia, Russia. Became one of these ten. So may his merit help, being that it's part of the Friedrich Rebbe's army of standing strong. Today, we have to translate that type of dedication. Thank God today does not come with blood, literal blood, does not come with the sacrifices of having to sacrifice one's life, the danger, and put yourself in danger. Today, the war is against apathy, the war is against uncertainty, the war against um, fear, and all that comes with that when we're dealing with uncertain and unknown times. So we take many lessons from Yud Beis and Yud Gimel Tamas. This is the first of many, one of many. And um, with that, I want to move into the fact that this week is also the chapter of Pinchas, the chapter in the Torah called Pasha's Pinchas, which is immediately connected to this entire story, as well as the middle of the week will also be the 17th of Tammuz, the beginning of the three weeks. 17th of Tammuz was when the walls of Jerusalem were breached. Um, in some opinions, both for the first temple, before the destruction of the first temple and the destruction of the second temple, there are opinions that it was only the destruction of the second temple by the Romans when the wall was breached on the 17th of Tammuz. So what is the connection and lesson to us? The connection is, first of all, Pinchas. Pinchas is the only recorded act of zealotry that is sanctioned and seen as a merit in the Torah. Zealots are not something the Torah advocates and definitely does not uh, command. Because there's a, there's a certain God said, do not be zealots. Don't be more religious than I. But there are times, those unique times, when a certain principle is challenged. In this case, Zimri, one of the leaders of the Jewish people, openly desecrated God's name. As we read in the end of last week's chapter yesterday, Bolok, Parsha Bolok, by openly behaving in a promiscuous way in front of Moses, in front of the Jewish people, desecrating God. So Pinchas, of all people, the humble, silent, quiet Pinchas, rose up to, def- to avenge and to protect and sanctify God's name. And we see time and again that zealous behavior is unacceptable. Yet here it is not only accepted, it's rewarded. But what is he rewarded with? With a covenant of peace, of shalom. But he behaved in a way that was so aggressive. It doesn't seem peaceful. Maybe it was necessary, but it was not exactly what one would call peace. But Pinchas was a peaceful person. He was not doing it because he was aggressive. He was doing it because he saw God being insulted in public. And as as such, he was allowed. Because if it was a zealous person and he had a history of zealotry, it probably would have been a very different story. Even if Zimri had done a crime and deserved punishment, nevertheless, you have to know the motivation of the one that's doing it. Pinchas was coming with total selflessness. It was something he was completely against his nature. That's what made it so powerful. It's like, you know, you see a person who's a warrior and then he starts fighting for a good cause. You could say, okay, it happens to be a good cause, but it's also his personality. 
And that personality sometimes fights for things that maybe he shouldn't fight for. Or it shouldn't be done through a war. Here was a man that was the opposite, a man of peace. And the Rebbe explains that this is the relationship with Yudbeis Tammuz, which is always around the time of Pinchas. Because the Friedrich Rebbe behaved exactly like that. He did not go by the letter of the law. He went beyond the letter of the law. Because it was a time of crisis. Eis Chedom, Arkas of the Masana. These are words used in the Talmud that talk about emergency measures. Desperate moments need desperate measures. Desperate here doesn't mean desperate as in desperation. It means using methods that go beyond the regular. Why? Because the Soviet Union irrationally basically wanted to close down all of Judaism. To say business as usual, let's just do everything the way it was done, was not enough. When you see darkness increase in such a radical fashion that goes beyond, that, that, that is irrational, what you have to do is use a higher form of, to, count, to counter it, a higher form of super-rational commitment, what we call mesiras nefesh, which explains why the Friedrich Rebbe went and gathered those other nine people, together with him ten, Christus Bris, a, a covenant. In the year 1972, Yud Thomas, the Rebbe spoke about it in very powerful terms, was the lesson he said. He said, my father-in-law told the story back in 1942. 1972 was 50 years from when it happened. Pei Beis to, to Lamed Beis. Tovshin Beis was 30 years. So the Rebbe spoke about 20 years after Tovshin Chav Beis, Tovshin Yud Beis, Tovshin Chav Beis. I'm sorry, 30 years? What did I say? 30 years? Right. 30 years from Tovshin Beis was Tovshin Lamed Beis, from 1942 to 1972. And 1922 is when that covenant took place. So the Rebbe asked the question, the Shver, his father-in-law, was not accustomed to talk about negative things and definitely not about showing, taking pride in his activities. And yet here he tells the story, which is a top-secret story, of the ten people who came together, the Friedrich Rebbe gathering nine other people, and they made this covenant and commitment to the last drop of blood. There must be a lesson for us, and the Rebbe says the lesson is that whatever time you're living in, Commitment is not just going through business as usual, but you have to have a commitment that's like a covenant. Gather together nine others and commit to something all the way. Total dedication. And total dedication is what is required, especially in times of unknowns, in times of crisis. And that's what the Friedrich Rebbe did, and that's the lesson to each one of us. The Rebbe continued, but a person can say, okay, the Friedrich Rebbe, he's a Rebbe. He has the power of such mysterious nefesh. We are regular, simple people. The Rebbe says, no, there's an expression in the Zohar that says, Posach Rab Shimon. He opened up a new channel. A pioneer makes it easier. They break through by paving a new path than those that come after them and makes it easier for them to do so. So it's not just he, he had that type of commitment. He actually paved the way and became a living example that makes it easier for all of us. That's what a real pioneer does. He opens up a new door. So therefore it makes it a lot easier on us. And because we also have all the genes and the strengths of the mountains and the, and the hills and the powers of our, our forefathers and our foremothers, our patriarchs and matriarchs, 
That's why it can be expected for all of us to have that absolute total devotion. Total commitment. Today, it's not Mesiris Nefesh, Mesiris Haratzen, as the Rebbe cites the, the Alta Rebbe, meaning giving your will, total dedication of your willpower, of your interests, your desires become focused entirely toward this cause. That is what is expected from us, especially, as I said, when times when things are shaken up. Those of us that were around and learned the lessons of Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tammuz, the lessons of the Rebbe's fortitude, recognize and therefore have to rise to the occasion and have that absolute fortitude, unwavering commitment to forge ahead and do whatever necessary to bring the light of godliness, of Torah, of mitzvahs to every person we can do, we can reach and beyond. And that's the driving force. That has been the underlying message in all the My Life programs and everything we've been doing in order to help show the way based on the clarity that we've received and we've learned and the direction and guidance. Again, especially in times like this when people are lost and feeling lost at sea and, un and uncertain, this is now the most important time of all to take these lessons of Yud Beis, Yud Gimel Tamas to heart and to action. And each one of us, every one of you out there, every one of us has to reach out to people with this strong message, a message of hope, of resilience, of courage, direction, clarity, vision, vision. Okay. So Pinchas, now, Shavasa Batamuz, as I said, is the breaching of the wall. How do we understand that? The wall around Jerusalem, technically speaking, is a form of protection. When you have something precious, you don't just leave it exposed, you surround it with a wall. So should there be an enemy, they have to contend with the wall around the city. Obviously, the saddest day in the Jewish calendar is the ninth of Av, when the actual destruction of the temple happened. But the breach of the wall is the beginning of the fall. I don't want to say the beginning of the end because it's not over yet until Mashiach comes when everything will be rebuilt. So Shavasa Thomas is a day which is a fast day. It marks the beginning of the three-week mourning period where three weeks later would ultimately turn into the destruction. But it all began with a wall. Explains the Rebbe, what's the significance? We all need to have walls. It's called. Build a fence around Tera. When, when you love somebody or you cherish something, you don't wait, you don't say, okay, I'll leave them exposed, and when someone attacks, that's when I'll go and do something about it. No. You, you, you um, protect it with surrounding walls, with doors, with locks. A treasure, you need to make sure that it is enclosed. That's the way of the world. So the, the wall around Jerusalem was a, a, a statement of respect and honor to what was inside those walls. You build a wall around a walled city, around something that's precious. So when that wall is breached, what happens is, so you still don't, you still have, you're still able to defend whatever's within those walls. But the breach of the wall is essentially the breach of those commitments we make that are those protective elements. So in psychological terms, when you look at a situation where a person 
whatever the reason may be, is, is vulnerable or has been hurt. So what do they do? They create certain uh, layers of def- defense, certain defensive lines. Now, once those defensive lines are breached, you may say, okay, not so bad yet. But it is. Because the key thing to remember is that, that the love that we use to build those gates and those walls and those fences, that is in some ways indicative even more than the object itself because that's why you protect it. And that's why you find in, in times of war when they say the walls have been breached, the defenses have been breached, that is very, very frightening because that's the beginning of the attack. But in a psychological term, it's like you create for your children, we create for our children all kinds of safe measures to protect them. You don't wait till they're attacked. You create those safeguards. And those safeguards is essentially the walls around. This teaches us how important it is to keep those boundaries, those boundaries that protect everything that is precious to us, especially in a world like ours, where there's hostility and there's corruption and there's all kinds of agendas, you don't wait. You build all the proper safeguards and measures necessary. So Shavasa Batamas teaches us the power of those safeguards. And of course, the tragedy when they're breached. When they're breached, that's when the problems begin. So when you're helping somebody and you see, for example, that Something is compromised, but it's not the essential connection. It seems like to be in a more superficial element. But since that superficial element was built in order to safeguard the essential treasure, that's when you have to be worried. So when you're using an example, you're counseling a couple. And so far, everything seems to be fine. But something has been breached. One of them, let's say, said an untruth to the other. So you could say, you know what, not so bad untruth, they can correct it, they can apologize, but once you start tampering, even with small things, it can be the beginning of a not healthy situation, you want to nip it in the bud and that's what would have happened had the Jews gotten their act together and done tshuva and corrected their ways, it would have been a breach of the wall, but it wouldn't have been the total uh, destruction, but that's not how it happened, the Friedrich Rebbe the Rebbe says, when he went to prison And when he fought for the Jewish pride and commitment, he didn't just fight for the minimum. He didn't say, you know what, let us just do the minimum. He fought for the maximum. Because he realized the war is not about the actual Jewish commitment, it's also about the safeguards. It's about the walls we build. One example the Rebbe gave, a very powerful example. When the Friedrich Rebbe was in prison, they finally decided to, to exile him. On the 3rd of Tammuz, that was commuted the, on the third of Thomas, his, his sentence, his sentence of death was commuted to exile. Okay. When they, they, they said to the Friedrich Rebbe that I think it was a Thursday. I'm not positive. If, if Yud Gimel Thomas was, I believe, Yud Beis Thomas was a Tuesday. So nine days earlier would be uh, seven days earlier would have been a Tuesday. Would have been a Sunday. Anyway, he got notice that he would need, he can go to exile. So he said, when do I leave from my prison to go to exile in Kastrama? They said, Thursday. And when will we arrive? They said, after Shabbos. Friedrich Rebbe said, no, no. 
he can't travel on Shabbos. And he, and he insisted. So, he, so that caused it to be delayed that he went later. The Rebbe said, but seemingly an obvious question, saving a life is more powerful than Shabbos. Even if he were to leave on Shabbos, since it was saving his life, it would be allowed. Let alone a few days before Shabbos, even though you start out the trip on, on Thursday, you can find many type of heterim uh, that allow you to continue the journey through Shabbos. So why did he insist? And the Rebbe said, that is mysterious nefesh. Because his caliber of a person, they knew that if the word got out that he traveled on Shabbos, they could always use it as a PR stunt. And say, you see your great Rebbe, when he came to save his own skin, he traveled on Shabbos. Even though it's clear that it's allowed, but it could have the impression by some people that he compromised. So he would refuse to compromise even on a, on a thing of that nature, which had absolute halachic and legal uh, right to do so. He fought for the wall, not just for the temple, because he realized that's what's necessary in our times. When you're dealing with such an enemy, you don't compromise on anything. You become stronger, even around the things that may be on the periphery or may not even be essential, but there's the wall around the essential. That is ultimately what is total commitment. You don't wait and say, okay, I'll only fight for the primary the treasure. No, also for the, the walls around it and all the protective elements that we put into place. Okay, with that, let's do a little housekeeping, some announcements, some comments. So firstly, this program, which is now in its 316th week, 7th year, is, um, has a dedicated website called chassidusapply.com where you can go ahead and submit any question, any comment completely anonymously at chassidusapply.com. You'll also find the archives of all previous programs, all the comments, as well as other resources, including resources that we've developed in the last months addressing the, the upheavals and the challenges of our times. There you can also find the essays, essays written by people from all backgrounds over the past years. The essay contest was now in its sixth year. The essay contest of applying a Hasidic idea to a contemporary challenge. Yes, um, people are asking about this year's contest. Stay tuned. You'll just have to be patient. Oh, and we will be announcing shortly the winners and continuing to develop this uh, beautiful essay contest. I received continuous great feedback. I just received some from someone who was inspired by the essay contest to actually write an entire compilation, a commentary on Tanya. I was very touched by that. And there were so many other stories that are outgrowths from this tremendous initiative, which is getting people to, use, to invest and infuse their particular skills and time and energy and creativity to apply, to address a challenge or an issue of our times with Hasidic ideas. The contest, of course, began before the pandemic. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I am sure if it had begun afterwards, there'd be plenty of essays writing about how to address the fears and other challenges of our times according to Hasidus. Okay. If you go to MeaningfulLife.com, which is our umbrella website, our flagship website, 
There is a section, MeaningfulLife.com slash Corona, where you can find full of resources and programs. We've also updated our website where you can see the schedule of events. We've literally tripled and quadrupled probably our output. Um, over 150 events just in the last few months that we never did before to respond to these challenges to people of all backgrounds, from parents to educators, communities all over the world, children, teenagers of all walks of life to address their issues. We've probably reached over, uh, I would say, over half a million new people and probably more. It's hard to count everything, not every medium can you really keep a tally of. And so whether it's through WhatsApp or Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or all the other platforms, that's what we've been doing because this is what you need to do in times like this. We always welcome your support, which is necessary now more than ever. And I thank you all for that who have, without even a solicitation, initiated on your own support. I thank you for that tremendously. There's nothing greater vote of confidence than that. But those of you that like to help us continue and grow the programs, and there are many different new programs that need and should be done, many more people to reach with these essential ideas and thoughts and especially tools and skills. So please don't hesitate. You can dedicate any program. You go to either at chassidusapply.com slash sponsor or donate. Same at meaningfullive.com. It's easy to find ways to do so. And I thank you in, in, I thank you ahead of time in advance for your partnership and support. So a few uh, letters that came in among many. We've received probably in the last few months, probably more than triple the amount of questions we usually receive. So you're talking about in the thousands, thousands and thousands of questions. I'm trying to address them all in just limited time, but please be patient. We'll get through them all. So a few comments that just came in the last few days. So select. Thank you for sharing your personal experience about Gimel Thomas last week. That was last week's episode 315. That sounded raw. If you can keep, if you can keep sharing more personal experiences about how you felt when you were around the Rebbe, I find that it makes the Rebbe more feel, feel more real and be deeply appreciated. Thank you. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I'm so grateful for your programs. Commented, I commented before about calling this pandemic the Cooney virus rather than its rather threatening official name because words have such power. But song has even more power. Which leads to this comment. You sang a niggin at the end of a few shows. This was truly healing. It left body and soul in a calm, softly cheerful place. Made the rest of the evening so peaceful. I for, I for one sorely miss it and imagine there are plenty of others feeling the same. Wondering if you might consider ending each show with song. While this would take away a bit of time from the questions, it could be well worth it. It could end things on an especially prayerful note and also give space for digesting what's been taken in before folks go forward with whatever their night holds. It's true a person could just play music from a CD for this, but there's more depth with the singing being live, especially when sung by someone familiar. So here's hoping whatever you decide, your programs are a much needed thing today. May God bless and keep you. Okay. Thank you very much for that. 
I'll do some cross-referencing on the topics we just addressed. Chassidus applied the 13th of Tammuz and Pinchas, episode 74, 124, 170, 219, 269. And lessons from the 17th of Tammuz and the three weeks, episode 74, 170, 218, 219, 269, and 270. So that might make more complete where I've discussed it in previous years. Now with that, let's get to some practical questions. And again, I really, I'm always touched and moved by your comments. It's such an honor to be able to be a partner with you where we are addressing issues that we're all concerned about, personal issues, issues that have long-term impact, and above all, issues that address the very mission of our lives. Why are we here in this year 2020 with all its unique trying challenges that we're facing? So, so, so one question, and as usual, I don't censor the questions, so uh, some questions some people don't like, but I try to address all questions. Every question, from my point of view, is legitimate. If it's coming from a human being, uh, to delegitimize de- 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 a person's question is delegitimizing the person. Whether you agree with the question or not, or you think it's a foolish question, or it's a question that shouldn't be asked, no, that's not the approach. Someone that's bashful will not learn. Questions are completely legitimate. Sometimes they need simple answers. Sometimes they require deeper answers. But they always are indicative of something being, someone is bothered by it, which to me is the most important aspect, not the question per se, even though that needs to be addressed. But what is irking or what is bothering somebody and trying to address that issue to try to help resolve the, the confusion, the doubts, and so on. So the first question I'm beginning with is because recently, just in the last few short while, the, the, as cities were beginning to open after the quarantine and the lockdown, well, there have been spikes in different states, and therefore authorities have become more cautious. Some call it a yellow light, meaning proceed with caution, not a red light, but also not a green light. So one questioner asks, why is no one wearing masks in 770? I'm very confused. 770 opened back up, right? And always, and almost no one is wearing a mask. The medical professionals are saying that masks are very beneficial. I visited 770 for a mincha and I felt out of place by wearing a mask. Now, first I hesitated whether to mention even which shul this is. You know, why mention a shul? Why you know, I could talk about it in general terms. But I decided I'll mention it because 770 is the central Chabad synagogue. And people look at it, it's, it's not just another shul. Well, there's no such thing as another shul. But it definitely has, it's more in the limelight and more in the center of activities. We know the only way we run our lives as Jews, as human beings, is following God's laws. What God says, that's what we do. God says, through doctors and rabbonim, that now is the time not to go to shul. That means that's what God wants, whether we like it or not. If it's a time to be cautious and careful how to go to shul or how to behave when you're there, because it is a time as man magefen, this isn't the first time there was a magefen, an epidemic or a pandemic, there are halachas, there are laws. So I still have no idea. Someone that, God forbid, doesn't follow halacha, doesn't respect it or is not aware of it, you could say they don't know better. So they're going on their own whim. Even there you need to be responsible for others, for yourself. 
But people who are halachic followers, people who go to shul, the first thing you're going to shul for is because Hashem, you're praying to God. And you're following God's Torah and His mitzvahs. So the first thing is following what God says through the Torah. The Torah says that you have to listen to doctors. The Rabbanim have given out their letters. So I, I don't know the details. I'm not even going into them. If they say you wear a mask, to wear a mask, you wear a mask. If a Rav told you you don't need to, fine. Then, then the answer to this question, the Rabbanim and the medical authorities are saying you don't need to. Again, I'm not here going to rule on this. If masks are a preventive element that is shown to slow down and protect people, especially those that are vulnerable, then it's absolutely. That's what you need to do. Not sure why there's this um, adamance not to follow these guidelines, if they are those guidelines. And I say that again, the big if. I'm not the Rav, I'm not the Rabbanim, so I'm not going to rule on this matter. I will say, because I have your attention and have your respect, I will say we have to insist for ourselves and our families and others to follow what it says in the Torah. There's no doing whatever you want. The fact that you're used to certain things, comfort, well, there are times that are difficult times, there are times that are challenging. Now we all hope that any of these new spikes are going to go away and will not bear, and not bear any, and, and will not uh, come to any negative results. But nevertheless, you have to be cautious. Pekoch nefesh is not just vadai. It's not just when you're sure it's dangerous. It's even when there's a doubt. Even when there's 1% doubt. That is equal Torah, the same Torah that tells you to go to shul, that tells you to daven, that tells you to have betochen and trust, and so on. Recklessness is not part of Torah. So that's my response. And again, we need to get the directives. You don't know what to do. Call up the Rav. Call up the rabbi in your community, whether it's in Crown Heights or elsewhere, and say, what should I do? And follow whatever is said. We don't have to become smarter than the Torah and Hashem. Okay. With that, let's go to another... uh, question this is about racism why can't we talk openly and be critical on both ends of the issues all about racism whether it's critical of those that are racist or critical of those of the BLM movement that's the question and let me write it, read it read it out in detail okay I've recently started listening to your podcast and just wanted to say a big yeshur koyach it's a big thank you Recently, the topic of of racism has come up, and I was wondering if it's all wrong. If I'm walking down the street, the middle of the night, especially in certain communities, is it wrong for me to be afraid if I meet a black person? Is it wrong to say that blacks are not actually oppressed? Is it wrong to say that if a black shoots a cop, nothing will happen, but if it's vice versa, even if the cops do it in self-defense, the whole world will go up in arms? What about the fact that BLM is more of a cult and harms innocent people? I know that these are a lot of questions, but if you can't try to address them, but if you can't try to address them, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you again. I've received probably at least 30, 40 such similar questions. And we all know there's a thing called politically correct and politically incorrect. There's certain things, even if they're true, can't be said because immediately you'll be attacked. That's a new pandemic that has, has consumed this world, at least definitely in the United States. 
You can't say something. You can't disagree. You're right away called a racist. Now, I know there are racists. No one's denying that. But not every conversation where somebody, let's say, is criticizing, looting, or violence, or responding to violence with violence, means that you're, you're a racist. It's simply a, 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 a outrageous use and abuse of freedom of expression. And I don't mean that everybody can express themselves in offensive ways. I mean freedom of expression of a normal, healthy dialogue. I'll just share one incident, for example. I don't see myself at all as a racist. I really don't. To me, God created every human being. Color makes no difference. Background makes no difference. Race, culture. God created every human being in the divine image. A white person could be a criminal. A black person could be a criminal. An Asian could be a criminal. doesn't make a difference. A person has choice and they make choices. When a crime is done, a crime is done. Whether it's a policeman killing a black man, whether it's a black man killing a black man, whether it's a black man killing a white man. Why is there a difference? Is there a type of bias and prejudice in our society? Yes, there is. No one has to preach that to us. Anti-Semitism? We're a constant victim of that. We're constantly being attacked in that way. Thank God today is different than the world as it was 70 years ago. So I'm talking to an individual, a very intelligent person who respects me, comes to my classes. But he's very much caught up in this protest. He's, I mean, he wouldn't ask me because he respects me, why don't you go out into the streets? But we're having a conversation. He says to me, he says to me, so what do you think about all this? Problem? He knows my thoughts. I said, look, I think that there is problems in our society, serious problems. People have been killed. Look, uh, George Floyd was killed by a policeman. Everyone agrees justice has to be served. The policeman was criminal in his act. But there's balance. That's what I said to him. I knew exactly what's going to happen when I said that. Because balance means, he hears right away, oh, balance means that's not really so bad. I said, no, it's terrible. But I'll tell you what balance is. You're marching, right? You march. Let me ask you something. You're an American born. You were born, your parents were born in America back in the 20th century. You know that six million George Floyds were killed mercilessly, men, women, and children, by the Nazi Europe. All of Europe was silent and complicit in many ways. And in America, I didn't hear any protests. Would you be marching in the streets if that happened? His response shocked me. He said to me, you sound like a racist. Why? Because I am so-called, he thinks I'm minimizing the George Floyd murder by deflecting it to the six men. I know exactly what he was thinking. I say, why am I? On the contrary. Is that not racism? Is that not discrimination? Last year, there was an attack in a Pittsburgh synagogue. I don't remember how many people, but quite a lot of people were killed in cold blood. There was an attack in Poway. There were other attacks. I didn't see you marching. Why not? That was, for, that was hate crimes. There was no justification. He could not really hear it. He still respects me, so he was like quiet. But this, is, this means if you can't have such a conversation, what does it tell us? Complete agenda. And you say that, it sounds like you're minimizing. No one's minimizing anything. There are racists, and that's that. But there also, we have to be able to talk on both angles. This comes another question in relation to this. To our dear hero, the inimitable <laughs> virtual mashpia of the virtual world, Rabbi Simon. While there are no ease in Rabbi Simon, you make it look easy. Okay. As we approach 12th, 13th Tammuz, a holiday celebrating the Friedrich Rebbe's escape from Marxist communism, I am dumbfounded 
by the Labavitchers who seemed to support BLM, an organization started by trained Marxists who are bringing anarchy to the streets in hopes of tearing down our government. Patrice Cullors, or Cullors is one of the Black Lives Matter movement's co-founders, a queer activist and has promoted far-left policies, including the abolition of prisons. In a 2015 clip taken from an interview for the Real News Network, Colors says, I think a lot of things. The first thing I think of is that we actually do have an ideology frame, she continues. Myself and Alicia, in particular, are trained organizers. We are trained Marxists. We are supervised on ideological theories, and I think that we are really trying to, what we are really trying, what we really try to do is build a movement that can be utilized by many, many black folk. Given our movement's firsthand history with Marxist communism, why aren't all the out trying to quell this uprising? Okay. So, I respond to all of this, everything is a matter of balance. I believe absolutely that we have to have a dialogue and a conversation and everything can be said. That doesn't mean everything is right. There are definitely offensive things that shouldn't be said. No, would I have a guest on this show? Would I give a platform to someone who starts spewing hatred, whether it's hatred to Jews or hatred to blacks or hatred to any particular group or individual? Absolutely not. It's not what I'm, my mission in this world was not to create platforms for that. On the other hand, if somebody sees violence and some injustice, absolutely, we have to protest. How to protest? If you see someone using and exploiting the protest for their own agendas, and they're using violent methods that are equally reprehensible as the original crime, that also has to be called out. Why is it a contradiction? Whenever you're trying to silence this type of conversation, you right away have to smell some type of agenda. Now, I know some people will hear this and say, okay, you're couching racism by giving everybody can say whatever they have to say. Well, I'm not coming theoretically. As I said, I'm a Jew. I've seen the murder of my own brothers and sisters. I've witnessed, I've heard about it. My parents coming from the former Soviet Union, the Nazi Europe. I mean, this is not like ancient history. So nobody has to preach racism. We've seen it. We continue to see it. What we have to do together is join together in an outrage and a call for a higher standard. And that standard applies across the board. To turn things political and try to take advantage of a situation, to me, is reprehensible. And still it does not take away from those that have done crimes, whether it's police, whether it's black against white or white against black or white against white or black against black, or black against white, or whatever, all the different options. doesn't make a difference. There's law and order that everybody is subject to. I think I said it many times, and I say it again, but I allowed these questions to be, to be I, I read these questions because I want to be a dialogue that we can talk about in balanced ways. And not, if you're not against, if you're not with me, you're against me. No. I may, be, I may be against what you're doing and I may be against that which you're protesting. And I think there are other ways to deal with it without minimizing it. Can we get a dialogue back into a decent civil way? I hope so. I am, I am confident and sure that many people are in a place where they can be open to such conversations 
And that's why I'm using this platform, even though it's called My Life Chassidus Applied. But Chassidus applies also to these conversations. How we speak to people. How we disagree. How we have clarity. And we don't get caught up in a polarized political agendas. Which frankly, that's what the media has become. Whether it's entertainment, whether it's one-upmanship, whether it's an agenda for a political party or against a political party or individual. I mean... Aren't we looking for emes, for truth? Which is why we have a teda er, a teda that illuminates and gives clarity to every situation. You look at a situation and you have to respect all the elements, the black, white, and gray, and the nuances, and come away and say what is right and what is wrong. And we, don't, we should not be intimidated by each other, by someone saying, you say something, that means I label you. Then you're doing exactly what, that's what racists do. They label people. I think enough said. And for those of you listening who disagree with what I'm saying, I have no problem. Please send me a letter or send on the forum. It can be completely anonymous. But don't just um, attack. Explain, and I'll read it. I'll read it, even if it disagrees with what I just said. I'll read it happily. And I'll respond. That's called a dialogue. I'm welcoming a conversation. I'm welcoming disagreement. Even that statement you don't hear. I'd respect someone say, you know, I have a position, but I welcome your position if you disagree. Okay. Okay, where are we here? Next question. Why do so many people not get it? Well, we began that question last week. I read one comment. I'm going to read another one now. Okay. It's a rather long one, but you know, it's connected to what we just read. We just discussed, rather. Thank you so much for your, Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for your wonderful virtual fabrengans during this very troubling time of the Chinese flu and riots. These riots, so close to our homes in Crown Heights and other communities, have been very troubling. As the descendant of a family whose earliest forebears came to the USA in the, 19, in the 1630s, I care deeply about the USA. I have thought a lot about what you discussed in your broadcast last Sunday. This is, I believe, two Sundays ago when this was written. And I wanted to share some musings with you. Please feel free to share as much of this with your viewers as you want. Well, I'm going to read it because I think it reflects an opinion that many people have. And again, if somebody disagrees, please don't vilify this. Send in your disagreement and I'll be happy to share it and discuss it. I have thought, okay, BLM and Antifa are out to destroy the fundamentals of our society. Rioters in Boston defaced the Shaw 54th Regiment Memorial to black soldiers in the Civil War as a Black Lives Matter, quote-unquote, protest. Read, riot. As a Black Lives Matter protest, read, riot, moved through the city on Sunday. The memorial targeted by the vandals was the Robert Gould Shaw and the 54th Regiment Memorial, which was unveiled 137 years ago, Sunday, and depicts a pioneering, a pioneering group of black soldiers marching into battle during the Civil War, war re- led by Robert Gould Shaw. The monument portrays Shaw and his men marching down Beacon Street past the State House on May 28, 1863, as they left Boston on their way to South Carolina. Shaw Erect on his horse, the men marching alongside, Shaw, a white man born into immense wealth and privilege, 
gave his life fighting for life, liberty, and equality under the law for all. BLM and antics hate that message. They are anarchists who seek to destroy our society, society based on Judeo-Christian teachings and values. So too, a lot of, ri- a lot of rioting has taken place in wealthy areas. On Rodeo Drive in L.A., hooligans were chanting and writing with graffiti, Eat the rich. The jealousy and class-baiting are the antithesis of one nation under God, indivisible, and the social mobility offered by the capitalist system. It's no coincidence that BLM and Antifa are arch-left, anti-God and anti-Semitic, and now to destroy the civil society. It is not surprising that shuls and kosher food shops have been targets of anti-Semitic graffiti and other vandalism during these troubled times. President Trump's philosophy is that when capitalism is allowed to work, when people are prosperous, they will unite and forget racial differences. His administration done, has done truly amazing work prior to the Chinese Wu flu pandemic and the BLM Antifa riots to help all ships rise financially. His economic policies have helped minority communities rise financially, and his administration has been the lowest levels of have seen the lowest levels of minority unemployment. I congratulate and commend him and his administration for this. While capitalism is the most free, most fair, colorblind economic system, and one that enriches people of all ethnicities and backgrounds, the foundation stone of society is God. God is the primary lo- Jenga block at the bottom of the tower, and when God is removed, is removed the entire to- tower topples. The left is waging war on God. They have succeeded in wounding him, especially in the public's view. By destroying God, they seek to destroy our society. By destroying God, they destroy the most free society in the world, one based on unalienable rights, individual rights, endowed by our Creator. The left seeks to replace the rights of the individual with the rights of the community. To make matters worse, instead of viewing our nation as one nation under God indivisible, one community, they seek to create communities within the nation, the black community, the LBGTQ plus community, and so on. Conquer and divide. They seek to replace the messianic vision with a godless utopian vision of equality of outcome for all. All that is except the elite. The masses will have equality of outcome regardless of hard work ethic, of talent, of entrepreneurial efforts, and the elites will rule the way it is in all socialist and communist countries. As Joseph Stalin said, America is like a healthy body and its resistance is threefold. It's patriotism, it's morality, and it's spiritual life. If we can undermine these three areas, America will collapse from within. End of quote from Joseph Stalin. God tells us that humans are created in his image. A person who recognizes that each individual is created in the divine image recognizes that we are all one race, the human race. A human who is cognizant that he or she is created in the divine image, won't behave the way these thugs are. Such a person would not act in such a degraded manner. A person who recognizes that each individual is created in the divine image will recognize the equal rights of each fellow human to dignity and personal property. Such a person wouldn't vandalize and loot. It degrades both the looter and the looted. For that matter, a person who recognizes that each individual is created in the divine image would never contemplate abortion, other than the rare case where it is needed to save the mother's life. The Rebbe spoke for hundreds of hours about the seven Noahide laws. The primary principle in the seven laws is the belief of God, in God. 
Under him and follow his laws, humanity can build a great civil society. Without him, society crumbles like hyenas who chew their own bodies if they don't have prey. A godless society consumes itself. In addition to our spreading the teachings of the seven Noahide laws, in general, our goal should be to remind all people that each individual human is created in divine image and that certain behavior is thus unbecoming of our lofty status. Give people an image of themselves that transcends the mundane and hopefully they can use, they can rise to see themselves that way. It's a long letter, but I read it. Many principles I agree with. Some I would word differently, to be very honest, because it's not meant to incite. And it's very good to think about godlessness and godliness in this context. And we can look at history. We have history that's the best teacher. So with that, another person writes, our destruction of statues and riots a sign of Mashiach's coming. There's an opinion that this destruction of statues is connected to the coming of Mashiach, and it's prophesied in Novi. I assume you're talking about statues like Aveda Zara, idolatry. The riots and what America has become also was foretold in Medrash as a sign of Mashiach. Well, it talks about when Mizgoresia, when nations will clash with each other. That, it's to bring it to us to Tshuva, but I see people don't get it. Okay. As you know, I mean, Medrashim. If they're always with a certain grain of salt, not because the Midrashim aren't accurate, but to apply Midrashim can be a little dangerous territory because you can apply anything to anything. So there's no question that events that happen are all leading towards something. To say it is this, that these events are a cause or are resulting because Mashiach is coming, no, we could have Mashiach coming without these, uh, t- these disruptions. So overall, yes, it's meant to wake us up, it's meant to us to get more clarity and to follow what God wants of us. Okay, another person asks, Today the New York Post reported Governor Cuomo was issued as a restraining order by a court after a federal court decision barring him from interfering with religious observance in connection to corona. This was a result of him allowing rioting of thousands while limiting how many can go to religious observances. I feel this is very significant. Please, what is your opinion on all this? Sorry for making this so long. Basically, protest versus religious gatherings. Look, if medically people gathering is inappropriate or dangerous or, or should be avoided, then it should be across the board. I don't understand how they could allow protesters for one cause and not others who want to gather together. So the court case is absolutely legitimate. Be consistent. I mean, it's ridiculous and hollow and disingenuous to say this cause could put people in danger if they publicly convene, publicly commune. And others can't publicly commune. Come in, what are you kidding me? You think the cause is what causes the contagion to spread or not? If it's contagious or we have to be careful, we have to be careful. So I have not much to say. I totally agree that this is a, a double standard that is completely inappropriate should be consistent. Just because they're afraid or they may agree with the protesters doesn't mean we can put each other in danger due to their cause. So I totally don't understand how this is possible. Okay. Now, there's a few more questions. Somebody writes a whole letter about the case for volunteerism. 
Can mandatory volunteerism be, volunteerism be part of the way to help America heal? So, um, this is a long letter. I'm not going to read the whole letter. But essentially, the writer is speaking about a case. A pro I propose mandatory volunteerism for high school students as part of the way to help America heal. Have you ever heard of someone burning down his own house because he was angry at society? Have you heard of someone who burns down his house because he doesn't like his room or is angry at his siblings? Probably not. But it does... But if it does occur, he would probably agree that the person has some mental and emotional issues that need dealing with by some highly qualified experts. Essentially, based on that, to look at America as our home and mandatory volunteerism makes you feel responsible that we're all part of one larger home and you wouldn't burn down your own home. I think it's a very good idea, actually. I maybe will, in the future weeks, read more details. But essentially, it's about that type of attitude. And I think part of a full program of re-educating our society, including our youth, how to look at the world, how to correct problems. You see an injustice, there are ways, there are legitimate, legal, and ethical ways to address it. And volunteerism is a very good idea, especially for the young. So that's my brief response to that. Let's see, what else can we do here? Okay, another follow-up was regarding what can we do about sky, skyrocketing housing and tuition costs. This was in context of us of moving from one community to the other during our strange times. So, dear Rabbi Jacobson, first, I cannot say enough about your program. May Hashem bless you. Ad bli dai. Okay. Such clarity. Amazing. I can't thank you enough for giving over the Rebbe's words, especially in these times. However, I do take issue with the way the question of what to do about tuition and real estate here in Crown Heights, which I discussed in the previous weeks. I cannot vouch for everyone, but many are leaving because they cannot afford to live here and no one seems to be interested in finding viable solutions. These are real problems. People are willing to sacrifice, but food, rent, and tuitions are skyrocketing without our so-called leadership doing anything. Do we have to wait till our institutions have to close down, God forbid, from lack of population? Many people said they would stay if this was addressed. I know Mashiach is, I know Mashiach is coming, but can the Jewish leadership here address this issue? It's part of chesed, no? People don't want handouts. They want real solutions. No one seems to be listening or I'm missing something here. Thank you and blessings. So I actually cited the talk the Rebbe gave, Tezvav Tammuz, Tovshim Hey. 1985, Tezvav Tammuz, this period in time, would basically be uh, 25 years ago, Memhei, Nunhei, Samachei, right? Actually, 35 years ago, I'm sorry, right? 35 years ago, the Rebbe spoke about it and was very upset that why is no one doing anything about it? So I'm not sure where you got an impression that I felt otherwise, but regardless, it's not about me, it's about the topic. Absolutely, it's responsibility of a community like we spoke before about seeing that we are one entity, we're one home, one community, especially the community called Khan Siva Hashem by the Rebbe. But the truth is with all communities, we're responsible for each other. It's not just everybody's out on their own to take care of themselves. And if prices are creating prohibitive ability for families to survive and to live in a peaceful way, we have to, as a collective, do something about it. And those that are 
taken advantage, either because their owners, uh, real estate and so on, have to be confronted in a pleasant way, in a legitimate way, in a Torah way. Let them hear the Rebbe Sicha. Money cannot be more important than the morals and ethics that we were taught, especially guided by, by Exodus, the Torah, and the Rebbe. So that's my clear answer to that. Okay, let me see what else we can cover here. How do I focus... How do I focus my mind during prayers? Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I've been struggling a while during my davening with having thoughts coming into my mind. I find myself saying the words of our tefillahs, prayers, but my mind wanders while doing so, while doing so. I find myself not focusing on what I'm saying and struggling to connect to the words that I'm uttering. It's especially tough for me when davening the Shemun I try so hard to clear my mind of any thoughts that do not pertain to Hashem or to davening, but they somehow, always, they somehow always manage to sneak their way in. I just watched a shir to, for children, and one of them asked how he, how he was able to, how, how you as a chayzer was able to remember the Rebbe's lengthy fabrengans to be printed after Shabbos and Yom Tif. Yes, I gave a shir like that to the students. First of all, those are writing Hanochis, and then there was a 8th and 9th, 7th uh, and 8th grades, I believe, that uh, wanted very interested to know how that was done. The answer was that you can't have any foreign thoughts in your mind. You also cannot be thinking about how you should have a clear mind in order to rid your mind of any foreign thoughts. The way to achieve this is through Bittl. What I quoted was, was a mimer, chapter 6, in actually Basiligani, where he talks about how a student is supposed to clear his mind from processing and just absorbing. It's called bittel. How does one work at obtaining complete bittel, especially during times such as we are living right now due to COVID? Thanks for reading. Well, firstly, it's the importance of the matter that you're focusing on. If your child came to you, or a very dear person has said, I have a real emergency situation. No matter what you're doing, you're going to focus and listen closely. You're not going to allow yourself to text or to be distracted, or to do something else, or think about something else. So, recognizing the importance, you're sitting, you're praying now to God. So the importance of it is, I'm focusing only on you, and you focus only on me. That's number one. Number two, you need to train yourself. It takes effort. You have to train yourself not to allow your thoughts to control you. You're right now listening. Let's say you're reading words from prayer. Or we're listening to the Rebbe. It was about absorbing what he says, not trying to understand it, not trying to analyze it, not trying to compare it to other ideas. Can it be done? Absolutely. But those two conditions has to be vital and important to you. If it's optional, then you'll say, oh, you know what, so what if I uh, multitasking? And secondly, you have to work at it. Train yourself again and again and again. You can go to How to Write a Hanocha. is a class I gave, a talk I gave, because there's an excellent project now that Bokram and Yeshivas are writing Hanocha. They're listening to the Rebbe's tape, uh, videos, and then writing it down. So they want the tips. So I gave a talk on this a, while, a few weeks ago. 
and actually I'm now a judge to uh, dis- determine which is the best Hanukkah from the different schools all over the country. All over the, I think it's all over the country, maybe all over the world. So how to write a Hanukkah, it's easy to find. Just go to chassidusapply.com and type that in. Okay. So let us see what else we can do here. I'll do one more question and then we'll uh, conclude. Can we yearn for Mashiach for ulterior personal motives? Since the beginning of all this, I'm begging yearning for Mashiach to come every single day. I heard a rabbi saying, you're not begging for Mashiach, but for a vaccine. I'm confused. Do we have to ask for Mashiach only for the sake of Mashiach? Or are we allowed to ask for Mashiach because of the bitterness of Golos? It's true I want a vaccine, but I know Mashiach is the vaccine. Please, can you give me clarity? Thank you. It's a very good question. It's a question that applies across the board. We already have a psach halocha on this matter in the Rambam, based on the Gemara and Kedushin. A person should always involve themselves in Torah mitzvahs, even if it's for ulterior motives. From an ulterior motive, will come to a pure motive. That's a general principle, and the Rambam cites in the laws of Truva, and the explanation is because nobody can do something for pure motive. He says there, everybody has a motive. It may be a physical benefit, it may be like here, a vaccine, it may be spiritual benefit, the world to come. Only Avram, he says, Oyavit, Avram, who loves me so dearly, God said, He committed to truth, he did truth because it was true. But the rest begin with the ulterior motive. So to say I want Mashiach, not just for Mashiach purposes, for the divine revelation, which is a kavana in Perikud and Tanya. It says, L'shamesh is keini, that a tzaddik, his whole, the word keini is what I'm focused, not L'shamesh is keini, that hamischasid im keini, who is ezu chosid hamischasid im keini. He's doing it in order to bring God to this world. It's like for God's purpose, not just for, not for a personal gain. But if someone because they have some suffering, or gullus in general, or this p- pandemic, is it, is it optimal? Well, according to the Gemara, can you apply that to Mashiach as well? There's a certain logic you can. Obviously, you want to grow to a point that you're not doing it just to have for a vaccine. And when the pandemic is over, you'll say, hey, I don't want Mashiach anymore. Obviously, that's not the story. So the answer is overall Yes. And you, then you grow. You come to Lishma, as the Rebbe interprets. The Teich, the Pnimius, the inner real purpose of the ulterior motive is really to do it for a pure motive. It just has to then emerge as we work and we grow and we understand that it's not just for our gain or for the gain of the community, but it's for the greater cause. We'll stop here because of time limits. I would love to go on. There's so many, so many questions. But I'm glad we covered this. some of these were going week after week. I was not able to cover. I'm happy I was able to do so. Everyone should have a liberating Yud Gimel Tamas, a liberating Chodesh Tamas, Chodesh Agula. Shivasar Tamas should be Yehopich Yom Emelu, Yehopich Yom Emelu, L'sosna L'simcha L'moyedim Tevim, as the Pesach says, cited in the Rambam and Hilchus Tainius at the end, that even before it comes, we should already have it transformed to holidays. With the Geula Amitiz Vashlema, the repair and the rebuilding of the third base Amigdash, even greater, Migdash Adnei Kainu Yadecha, an eternal base Amigdash this time, because we went through already all the difficulties. This time it will be eternal and permanent. 
Gula Amitis Vashlema, even before Shavosu Betamas. This has been My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 316. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. It's always an honor and a pleasure. Everyone have a very blessed and liberating week. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.